This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 136th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, March 29th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors. And this week, we had Captain B-Man, Cody Martins, Darriot V. Brooks, Jane England, and Ryan sign up to support us all through Patreon. And then we also had one last studio donation to our GoFundMe page by Sahil Habibi, who actually is the host of The Progressive Voice. So definitely check him out because he produces phenomenal content. So thank you all so much to these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash support. Or if you're interested in supporting the show in a different way, you can visit humanistreport.com slash store to get one of these exclusive Policy Over Platitudes t-shirts. But now is the time for me to stop plugging all of this and get into the news. So on this episode, in no particular order, we'll be talking about YouTube's newest changes that are hurting independent creators. We'll also talk about the March for Our Lives, which is an event organized by the Parkland Mass Shooting Survivors. We'll discuss the attacks against March for Our Lives by Republican pundits, why John Bolton is one of the most dangerous men now in one of the most powerful positions in the world, Joe Biden and Trump exchange immature middle school attacks, we'll talk about another unarmed black man killed by police, how the Cloud Act violates your civil liberties, the outcome of Bernie Sanders' call to end war in Yemen, what a lobbying firm that represents AT&T and Verizon is now doing to challenge states that enacted their own net neutrality laws. And also, health insurance companies are spending big to elect Democrats who are against Medicare for All. That's what's on the agenda today, so let's go ahead and get into it. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the show, even though it's a pretty loaded episode, not too much fun topics to talk about, but nonetheless, we've got to get to it. President Donald Trump has decided to fire his national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, and he announced that he'll be replacing him with John Bolton, who served as U.N. ambassador under George W. Bush's administration. Now, John Bolton is someone who I would describe as a neocon's neocon. Now, what do I mean by that? This is an individual that is unapologetically pro-war, and he openly advocates for regime change in multiple countries like Iran and North Korea. In fact, in 2015, he actually published an op-ed in the New York Times titled, To Stop Iran's Bomb, Bomb Iran, and also argued in the Wall Street Journal that the United States is legally authorized to preemptively strike North Korea. And if that wasn't enough, he still defends one of the biggest foreign policy blunders in the history of our nation, the Iraq War. So he's quite literally never seen a war he didn't like. And now he's going to be advising President Donald Trump on national security matters. So when I say that this is the absolute worst case scenario, I'm not being hyperbolic because if there's anyone who you don't want to be advising Donald Trump, 
to be in Donald Trump's ear, it's John Bolton. And now he has a lot of sway over Donald Trump's foreign policy. And this is especially terrifying when you look at a tweet from journalist Max Blumenthal, who explains that Bolton told him, quote, he hoped to work under a president with no foreign policy experience, someone who could be easily moved. Now, let me ask you this. Who does that sound like to you? President Donald Trump. Now, getting back to John Bolton's view towards Iran, it's not just that he wants the United States to unilaterally strike Iran, but he actually wants to do it quickly. In fact, he stated a timeline that he has for when we should be in Tehran celebrating. This is what he said just last summer. And that's... And that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. So he wants to overthrow the Iranian regime by 2019. Now, I don't even have to tell you guys the amount of lives that would be lost in that type of endeavor, both American and Iranian but to say that that would destabilize the region even more would be an understatement. Now, how could someone possibly be for regime change? Why hasn't John Bolton learned his lesson? Because regime change clearly didn't go well in countries like Libya and when it comes to Iraq. It was a complete and utter disaster. But the problem is that he not only supported those endeavors, but he still supports them. Today, I mean, he still thinks that the Iraq war was a success. So you've, you've called for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran, and Syria. In the first two countries, we've had regime change, and obviously it's been, I'd say a disaster. I think we no, agree. No, okay. I, I don't agree with that. And, and let me, let me, you don't think it's been a disaster? No, because to argue that, you have to argue, let's just take Iraq to begin with, you have to argue that everything that followed from the fall of Saddam Hussein followed inevitably, solely, and unalterably from the decision to overthrow him. And that's simply not I, I would never argue that. I'm, you, I'm merely arguing the you, macro you have picture to. since you, well, you, you just said that Iran is the single greatest threat to us and to that region. I think you'll concede that Saddam was the greatest counterbalance to Iran and they were empowered by his, by his fall. So I think it's fair to say if you think Iran is the real threat that way, you know, it's kind of no, hard to defend that decision, I, right? No, because I think your analysis is simple-minded, frankly. So this is what he's effectively contending here. If you agree with facts, then you're simply thinking about Middle East geopolitics in a simple-minded way. No. What Tucker Carlson was saying was correct. How can you possibly say that the Iraq war was a good idea if it made Iran a bigger power player in the region? And now you're still saying that Iran has too much power and influence in the region. I mean, you have to make up your mind. But you see, it really is simple. We don't have to dive too deep to figure out why John Bolton is in favor of all these wars. It's because... He's never seen a war that he's against. Anytime there's an opportunity for the United States to bomb another country, he's going to be all in favor of it. Oh, and uh, on the topic of Iraq, did I mention that he also lied about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction? Because he did. 
Now, the question is, why on earth is this individual so bloodthirsty? Did he fight in a war and then come back with this vendetta against foreign countries and he just has this newfound feel of American exceptionalism? What is the deal? Well, he never served in the military before, so I think that the simplest explanation is that he's just a lunatic and he's an objectively bad person because besides his advocacy for war, he does have some non-war related hobbies. In fact, he runs a right-wing super PAC that's funded by right-wing billionaires, the Mercer family. And he also chairs the Gatestone Institute, which releases fake news and statistics about the threat Muslims pose to not just the United States, but Western culture in general. And he's also been a longtime right-wing ideologue who literally joked about Obama being a Muslim. And ideologically speaking, his views are problematic because he believes in global anarchy. As Slade explains, he was hostile to the idea of international law, having once declared it is a big mistake for us to grant any validity to international law, even when it may seem in our short-term interest to do so. Because over the long term, the goal of those who think that international law really means anything are those who want to constrain the United States. So do you understand why he's against international law? That quote implies that he's against international law because he wants absolutely no checks on U.S. hegemony. So, the United States should be able to bomb any country ever, whenever it wants, and there should be no international authority to tell us not to do so. This guy is absolutely insane. He's a madman. He's not fit to be anywhere near the White House. And yet, he is in one of the most powerful positions in the White House, and he has a direct ear to President Trump and will be influencing him over national security matters. Now, The question is, how much influence will he really have? Will there be other people pushing back against his warmongering? Well, the answer is... Uh, Not too many, because there are now reports about his plan to, quote, clean house, presumably to cleanse the administration of any last anti-war advocates. And at this point, with Bannon and Tillerson both being gone, all that's left are right-wingers who would probably agree with John Bolton. All of the non-interventionist voices within Trump's administration that influenced him, they're gone. And anyone who's left... They're going to have to update their resumes because John Bolton is going to make sure they're out. So this is a really, really terrifying situation. And what can we expect at a minimum from John Bolton? Well, certainly he's been against the Iran nuclear deal from day one. And that's because that deal is a deterrent from intervention. So once he rips that up, then what is he going to push for? Of course, bombing Iran. He's stated a long ago that this is what he wants. So certainly we can expect Donald Trump to be even more hawkish than he's already been. And now we can expect potentially another intervention somewhere. So we have to be extremely vigilant and keep pressure on Donald Trump and John Bolton. And we need to let them know that the American people are sick of wars and we're not going to take this. It's not acceptable. Over the weekend, a massive protest led by the Parkland school shooting survivors took place. And to say that it was a success would be an understatement because according to Vox, March for Our Lives was one of the biggest youth protests since the Vietnam War, with more than a million people taking to the streets to demand gun reform across the nation, with hundreds of thousands marching in D.C. alone. And they made so much noise that the mainstream media surprisingly was forced to pay attention. Now, When it comes to the types of gun reforms that they're calling for, they're not calling for 
a ban of all firearms and aren't calling for confiscation. They're calling for moderate gun reform. Specifically, they want universal background checks. They want a ban on high-capacity magazines. They want to ban assault rifles. They want to allow for the Center for Disease Control to not only study gun violence again, but actually fund studies for it. They want the digitization of gun purchase records, so that way it'll be more easier to track crimes related to gun violence. So these are all moderate changes that certainly won't end gun violence in America once and for all, but this would curtail the number of mass shootings we see in this country because it seems like every other week there's a new mass shooting. So if we implement these changes, that will be a huge step in the right direction. Is it the end-all be-all? Not necessarily, but it would help. So it's not just, however, that these students called for gun reform, but they actually took action and influenced people to sign up to register to vote, specifically to vote against NRA-funded politicians. And they registered 4,800 people to vote, which is just huge. Now, during this event, there were tons of phenomenal speeches, but here are some highlights that um, I wanted to share with you because they were just incredibly touching and inspirational. And keep in mind that some of these speakers here, what you're about to see, they're as young as nine years old. The cold grasp of corruption shackles the District of Columbia. The winter is over. Change is here. The sun shines on a new day and the day is ours. For the first-time voters, show up 18% of the time at midterm elections. Not anymore. Now, who here is going to vote in the 2018 election? If you listen real close, you can hear the people in power shaking. They've gotten used to being protective of their position, chewing safety the safety of inaction. Inaction is no longer safe, and to that we say, no more. I am here today to acknowledge and represent the African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of every national newspaper, whose stories don't lead on the evening news. I represent the African-American women who are victims of gun violence, who are simply statistics instead of vibrant, beautiful girls at full of potential. It is my privilege to be here today. I am indeed full of privilege. My voice has been heard. I am here to acknowledge their stories, to say they matter, to say their names, because I can, and I was asked to be. In a little over six minutes, 17 of our friends were taken from us, 15 were injured, and everyone, absolutely everyone, in the Douglas community was forever altered. Everyone who was there understands. Everyone who has been touched by the cold grip of gun violence understands. For us, long, tearful, chaotic hours in the scorching afternoon sun were spent not knowing. No one understood the extent of what had happened. No one could believe that there were bodies in that building waiting to be identified for over a day. No one knew that the people who were missing had stopped breathing long before any of us had even known that a code red had been called. No one could comprehend the devastating aftermath or how far this would reach or where this would go. For those who still can't comprehend because they refuse to, I'll tell you where it went. Right into the ground, six feet deep. Six minutes and 20 seconds with an AR-15, and my friend Carmen would never complain to me about piano practice. Since the time that I came out here, 
It has been six minutes and 20 seconds. The shooter has ceased shooting and will soon abandon his rifle, blend in with the students as they escape and walk free for an hour before arrest. Fight for your lives before it's someone else's job. And to those politicians supported by the NRA that allow the continued slaughter of our children and our future, I say get your resumes ready. And let's take this to midterm elections, because without the persistent heat, without the persistence of voters and Americans everywhere getting out to every election, democracy will not flourish, but it can and it will. So I say to those politicians that say change will not come, I say we will not stop until every man, every woman, every child, and every American can live without fear of gun violence. And to that I say, no more. So that was powerful. Um, when I saw their speeches, I got really emotional. I, I was just so touched by it because, again, these are kids between the ages of 9 and 18, and they were speaking in a way that really emphasizes the urgency of this issue. It's not something that they are calling on to be aspirational. We just need to incrementally move towards the direction of, you know, stricter gun laws. They're saying, do it now, because that's what's needed. If you truly want to save children, if you truly care about lives, then you need to pass gun reform legislation now. And some state legislatures actually responded by passing gun reform. Uh, New Jersey, for example, did. So, I mean, these kids are having a huge impact not only in the United States, but across the globe, because they made so much noise. Even foreign news outlets covered this briefly. It's just, it's huge. So, I mean, this is the next generation who will take power after millennials, Gen Z. And what I see here makes me incredibly hopeful, because currently, the political climate in the United States is so toxic. It is, it's awful, really. Let's be frank, it's completely awful. But once millennials take control and we vote all of the older generations out who ruin this country, ruin the planet, ruin the economy, once we take power, then we're going to have to clean up the mess. And I have no doubt that Gen Z is going to come in and make this world a better place. Now, I know that that sounds cliche. I know it sounds like a platitude and it is to a degree, but what they're doing here, it's amazing. I mean, again, I want to stress just how young these children are. Nine. 11, 17, 18, I mean, this is huge. Kids are taking a stand, and for good reason, they don't want to be killed. They're going to usher in a new era in American politics where we no longer are afraid to say what's true. If politicians are corrupt, if they're taking NRA money and they're refusing to budge on policy because they're taking NRA money, well, they no longer get to basically hide behind a media who's complicit in their corruption because this new generation knows what's at stake and they know why these politicians aren't acting. It's about the money. So I hope that this is a movement that doesn't just stop at gun reform and spreads to other types of policy issues, Medicare for all, climate change, because anytime you want to know why politicians aren't acting, you just have to follow the money usually and you'll see exactly why they're refusing to do anything. It's because they're paid to not take action. So this generation has given me hope that we're going to stop this corruption once and for all in this country. And I couldn't be happier about it.
So disingenuous Republican snowflakes just couldn't stand the fact that children were able to mobilize a nationwide protest where more than a million people demanded moderate gun reform. Now again, let me remind you that they just survived the Parkland mass shooting. But yet, these Republicans don't think that they have a legitimate reason to call for gun reform, and they also are opposed to them. So what did they do in order to basically denounce what these students did? Well, they attacked them, and they made fun of them in a pretty ruthless way, even by Republican standards. So the first individual that decided to attack them was Congressman Steve King, who posted this to Facebook about Emma Gonzalez saying, This is how you look when you claim Cuban heritage, yet don't speak Spanish and ignore the fact that your ancestors fled the island when the dictatorship turned Cuba into a prison camp after removing all weapons from its citizens, hence their right to self-defense. See, these are the types of ad hominem character attacks that you have to resort to if you don't have a legitimate response to someone's argument. But the fact that this was a sitting congressman who attacked a child makes this particularly egregious. So it's not just that his argument is laughable. It's that he's directing this argument, this criticism, this ruthless criticism towards a teenager. What is wrong with you? You can be against gun reform. That's fine. We know you're against gun reform, Steve King, because you're corrupt and you take money from the NRA. But to attack a child, what is wrong with you? I don't know how else to describe this as anything other than bullying. Now, right-wing radio host Bill Mitchell took the Twitter to state how David Hogg, one of the organizers and survivors, looks like one of the kids from Children of the Corn. Real classy. You're attacking a child who just survived a mass shooting. And now, since his world was turned upside down, he's probably still shell-shocked from the event that he saw. You're choosing to say he looks like someone from Children of the Corn. Go fuck yourself, Bill Mitchell. How disgusting do you have to be to attack a child? Now, Meghan McCain also spoke out. Now, she didn't resort to ad hominem attacks, but she certainly was offended by the tone and language used by David Hogg. There were a lot of comments coming out, specifically from David Hogg, that I just, I don't... Who's he? he he's oh, the honey, he's one of the big yeah. kids, yeah. But one thing I will say is that you don't move the narrative when you use language like this. And he said, it just makes me think what sick blankers out there want to continue to sell more guns, murder more children, and honestly just get reelected. What type of blanking person does that? They could have blood from children splattered all over their faces and they don't take action because all they see is dollar signs. There's another kid, Kyle Kashuv, I believe his name is, who is the Second Amendment uh, pro supporter that's also one student who has been meeting with so many politicians, including Vice President Pence twice, the President of the United States, and congressmen and senators across the country. And I just think, I wish we could have it where the rhetoric isn't that any of us could have blood splattered on our faces and your life perspective wouldn't be changed. And I don't think it's productive. See, I watched that video and I think it's just so funny that Republicans call the left triggered snowflakes. How can you maintain that position if your side continues to cry every time they hear naughty words? She said here, you don't move the narrative when you use language like this. And she also stated that his type of rhetoric wasn't productive. So the problem is that rather than addressing the actual message that David Hogg was saying, which was legitimate, she was too triggered by his naughty words more than anything and just couldn't get past it. Well, let me tell you this, Megan. If you're more offended by David Hogg using naughty words than you are with lawmakers in action, then there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Your priorities are ass backwards and you need to get them in order because naughty words, that's less important 
then lawmakers not doing anything. But Jesse Waters of Fox News also seemed to be a bit offended by the language used by David Hogg during this event. The guy, is it David Hogg or Hoggs? He started off, and I've seen him on Fox News, he started off as this balanced, nice kid who was reporting the facts about what were happening at the school. And he's just now become a real bomb thrower. And someone like this, I think, isn't helping the conversation. It makes people get their backs up. This guy makes people think... You're coming for my guns. You're going to say that Rubio is, you know, has blood on his hands because he takes money from the NRA. Maybe he takes money from the NRA because he supports the Second Amendment. Or maybe it's the case that he takes money from the NRA because he's corrupt and he cares more about his own reelection prospects than the lives of children. So I'm sorry, but if he continues to behave in this way, we will continue to say that he has blood on his hands because being complicit when you can do something, when you have the power to act, that means, yes, you have blood on your hands. If you think that that's a little bit too far or harsh, too bad. My favorite part here was when he said, this guy makes people think that they're coming for my guns, but that's not what they're saying they want. They're calling for moderate gun reform. So by saying that you think they want to take away your guns, you're misrepresenting their argument and you're being intellectually dishonest. But Jesse Waters wasn't the only smug asshole at Fox News that decided to attack children because so-called comedian Greg Gutfeld decided to get in on this as well. So what was once personal is now political, complete with slogans, signs, a gushing media, militant salutes, and of course, invective. First off, I'm going to start off by putting this price tag right here as a reminder for you guys to know how much Marco Rubio took for every student's life in Florida. One dollar and five cents. So that was harsh. But was it daring? Not really. What would be daring is including a Parkland student with a different viewpoint on gun control up on that stage as well. Now, with David Hogg, he's just a kid, right? So the media says off limits. But the Rubio thing, that was lame grandstanding. Is that too harsh to Mr. Hogg? Not really, because by criticizing him, I'm complimenting him. He's now a revolutionary, like other well-organized and well-funded revolutionaries. Not challenging revolutionaries would be patronizing. So that's how a grown adult justifies his attack on a teenager. He claims that he is a, quote, well-funded revolutionary. Now, what is he trying to imply by saying that David Hogg is a well-funded revolutionary? He's trying to suggest here, like Republicans do all the time, that that teenager can't possibly care this much about gun violence. He couldn't have possibly developed this position on guns because of his experience almost getting killed by them or on his own accord at all. It's because he's being bankrolled by George Soros. Forget about the actual funding from the NRA politicians receive that literally buys their inaction. It's these children who are the ones who are well-funded, who are demanding moderate gun reform. They're the ones who are really corrupt, not these politicians. Way to speak truth to power, Greg. And this is someone who considers himself to be a comedian. Well, the reason why nobody even knows that you're a comedian and nobody thinks you're funny, Greg, is because if you are punching down, you're not being funny. You're just being an asshole. You're being a bully. And that's what you were doing to this child, David Hogg. And perhaps the most condescending and contradictory attack I saw came from right-wing Barbie herself, Tommy Lauren, who put these children in their place by telling them how wrong they were by misrepresenting their argument. You say this was a march for our lives. But the message was more anti-gun and anti-NRA than anything else. This demonization of the NRA does nothing to solve the problem. 
Do you realize the NRA is made of nearly 5 million of your fellow Americans? These are people who want what's best for this country, just like you do. You may think the solution is gun control, and we can debate that, but don't you dare blame law-abiding gun owners and NRA members for crimes they didn't commit. You don't get to self-righteously demonize those who disagree with your gun control agenda. Okay, think about how ridiculous her argument is. She said, this demonization of the NRA does nothing to solve the problem. Are you kidding me? The NRA is at the center of the problem because they are the one main obstacle that's preventing reform. If they weren't buying politicians and corrupting the political process, maybe it'd be the case that we'd have moderate gun reform since the overwhelming majority of the American people want moderate gun reform. So to suggest that demonizing the NRA is a misguided way to approach the situation, it doesn't even make sense. Now, she also said, you may think the solution is gun control, and we can debate that, but you don't dare blame law-abiding gun owners and NRA members for crimes they didn't commit. They were literally marching for gun control. They weren't marching against gun owners. They weren't marching against NRA members. They were marching because they wanted gun reform. At what point did they say that people who own guns, who are law-abiding citizens, are evil people? That's not what they're saying. They're trying to prevent people who are crazy and criminals from obtaining weapons. Don't you guys support that as well? Apparently not, because now you're attacking them for stating this position. But I saved the best for last, because Rick Santorum basically attacked these kids in the most idiotic way imaginable. I mean, what he said almost made my head explode. <laughs> so if you haven't already seen this by now, take a look. Is this a political movement? <clears throat> Very well, maybe, and that's fine. I mean, if, if the organizers, people who certainly supported it, uh, the Hollywood elites and the, and the liberal billionaires who, who funded this, it's all about politics. Is this really all about politics or is it all about keeping our schools safe? Because it is about keeping our schools safe then we have to have much broader discussion than the discussion that's going on right now. How about kids, instead of looking to someone else to solve their problem, do something about maybe taking CPR classes or trying to deal with, with situations that where there is a violent shooter but that you can How are they looking at other people? To to, I would ask you, they took action. Yeah, they took action to ask someone to pass a law. They didn't take action to say, how do I, well, as an individual, deal with this problem. How am I gonna do something about stopping bullying within my own community? What am I gonna do to actually help respond to a shooter? What am I gonna do? Those are the kinds of things where you can take it internally and say, here's how I'm gonna deal with this. Here's how I'm gonna help the situation instead of going and protesting and saying, oh, someone else needs to pass a law to protect me. Wow. How do you respond to that? That's someone who is so unreasonable, so far removed from reality that I don't think a response to what he's saying, it wouldn't have an impact. I mean, what do you say to that? He said, instead of kids looking to someone else to solve their problems, do something about maybe taking CPR classes or try to deal with situations where there is a violent shooter. So what he's suggesting is that instead of trying to prevent these shootings from occurring in the first place, these students should instead equip themselves with the knowledge needed to better respond to mass shootings. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. You're seriously suggesting with a straight face that they should try to take matters into their own hands and they should try to better respond to shooters? I mean, should we arm them, Rick? What's the solution? 
Now, he claims that they didn't take meaningful action because they're asking someone else to come to the rescue. They're asking lawmakers to pass a law protecting them, so they're not doing something for themselves. But that's how things work in a democracy. If something is happening, you pressure government to take action. What are you even talking about? This is a former presidential candidate, a former senator, and he's saying that by putting pressure on lawmakers, these kids aren't really doing anything. What is wrong with you, Rick Santorum? Why does CNN have him on their payroll? He's a contributor to CNN. They bring him back again and again and treat him like he has legitimate policy positions and actual political commentary that makes sense when he just said one of the dumbest things I think I've ever heard in my entire life. These children are not able to pass laws themselves. They're directing their activism towards their country's government. That's what you do when you want policy changes. So, I mean, congrats to all of these Republican pundits and uh, politicians who decided to attack these children, some of which, again, were as young as nine. I mean, do you feel big about yourself being able to um, trigger young libs like this? Do you feel like a badass because you are talking down condescendingly to nine-year-olds? Really? It, it, I mean, does that make you feel big? I don't know what to say, but this is really low, even for Republicans. Shame on you. Shame on every single Republican that spoke out against these children. So, over the course of the last couple of decades, we've seen the degradation of our Fourth Amendment rights. Our privacy is being violated constantly. We learned about this even more with the Snowden revelations in 2013. And in 2017, one of the first things that President Donald Trump did was sign away our online privacy rights. But our online privacy and our data held by companies, our data, our personal data held by companies is now up for grabs in another way, thanks to something known as the Cloud Act. Now, according to Kristen Hauser of Futurism, while you were reeling from the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal, the U.S. government quietly passed a piece of legislation that has far bigger implications for your data. The law is called the Clarifying Overseas Use of Data, Cloud Act. It's basically an update to the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, a series of laws that regulate how U.S. law enforcement officials can access data stored overseas. Up until last week, the U.S. could only access data stored overseas through mutual legal assistance treaties, or MLATs. With the MLAT, two or more nations put in writing exactly how they are willing to help each other with legal investigations. The Senate votes on each MLAT, and it must receive two-thirds approval to pass. The Cloud Act gives the U.S. an alternative to MLATs. Through the Cloud Act, U.S. law enforcement officials at any level from local police to federal agents can force companies to turn over user data regardless of where the company stores the data. The Cloud Act also gives the executive branch the ability to enter into executive agreements with foreign nations, which could allow each nation to get its hands on user data stored in the other country, no matter the hosting nation's privacy laws. These agreements don't require congressional approval. Approval. So there's a lot going on there, and I understand if it's difficult to fully grasp the implications of this, but journalist Nima Singh Giuliani actually laid it out in a really good example. She states, what would happen if the Turkish government asked the U.S. government for the Facebook messages of Turkish human rights activists that were stored on a server in the United States? 
Well, currently, there would be safeguards to stop the U.S. from giving up that information, but with the Cloud Act, the Attorney General and Jeff Sessions would both have all the power over that activist's digital privacy rights. So instead of having Congress decide what happens, whether or not the United States would turn over that data to the Turkish government, now it's just in the hands of the Attorney General and Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo and Jeff Sessions. So that is incredibly problematic. Now, someone who is a huge defender of the Fourth Amendment, Rand Paul, sounded off about this on Twitter, and he provided a quote from Nima's article that says, Congress should reject the Cloud Act because it fails to protect human rights or Americans' privacy, gives up their constitutional role, and gives far too much power to the Attorney General, the Secretary of State, the President, and foreign governments. But he followed up saying, but guess what? Congress can't vote to reject the Cloud Act because it just got stuck onto the omnibus with no prior legislative action or review. And guess what? Before we even learned about what this was, before we could fully grasp all of the implications of the Cloud Act, it was passed, and Donald Trump already signed it into law. So at this point, there's absolutely nothing we can do to stop it. It's now enacted, and the Fourth Amendment is being eroded even further. Our data is even more vulnerable. Our data is now in the hands of Mike Pompeo and Jeff Sessions. So even if we can't really do anything about it, I still think it's important that you know what your government is doing to violate your civil liberties. I think that when it comes to data, we have to do everything in our power to safeguard it. But now, Jeff Sessions and Mike Pompeo can tell tech companies that they need to turn over data regardless of where that data is stored. It's incredibly problematic. And unfortunately, nobody knew about this really. I mean, I saw a little bit about this on Reddit, but by and large, the media didn't talk about this. And that's incredibly troublesome because this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So if we're not going to respect our Constitution. Why do we even have it? I mean, it, it makes no sense. This was a bill that they didn't give anyone a choice to debate it. The American people didn't have time to react. It was just stuck into a bill and then passed. That's what they do in Congress because they know that if they allow this legislation any time in the sunlight, any sort of debate whatsoever, the American people would unequivocally reject it. Hence why they have to do things like this. They have to sneak really unpopular types of legislation that takes away our civil liberties into omnibus spending bills in order to make sure it gets passed. But again, we can't do anything now. It's passed. Trump signed it into law. So you have the details. Unfortunately, there's not much you could do about it now. Proponents of net neutrality recently have been riding on this wave of momentum where state after state has proposed legislation to enact their own net neutrality laws after the FCC repealed them nationally in December of 2017. So Washington became the first state to pass net neutrality legislation. Oregon followed suit, and it looks as though California will follow soon after Oregon. And there's also more states doing everything in their power to pass net neutrality rules before the FCC's repeal takes effect in April. Now, unfortunately, I have some bad news to report because after that momentum, it's clear that internet service providers are not happy about what states are doing to protect net neutrality. So a popular lobbying firm known as U.S. Telecom, who represents internet service providers like AT&T and Verizon, is now 
doing what they can to stop momentum at the state level. And they're suing states, and they state that they are taking aggressive action to stop states from passing their own net neutrality laws. So according to John Brodkin of Ars Technica, a lobby group that represents AT&T, Verizon, and other telcos plans to sue states and cities that try to enforce net neutrality rules. U.S. Telecom, the lobby group, made its intentions clear yesterday in a blog post titled, All Americans Deserve Equal Rights Online. Broadband providers have worked hard over the past 20 years to deploy ever more sophisticated, faster, and higher capacity networks and uphold net neutrality protections for all, U.S. Telecom CEO Jonathan Spalter wrote. To continue this important work, there is no question we will aggressively challenge state or municipal attempts to fracture the federal regulatory structure that made all this progress possible. The U.S. Telecom Board of Directors includes AT&T, Verizon, Frontier, CenturyLink, Windstream, and other telcos. The group's membership ranges from the nation's largest telecom companies to small rural cooperatives. So understand that what they're saying is inherently contradictory. They're saying that they are are upholding net neutrality and they will uphold net neutrality but yet they're aggressively challenging states who want to pass their own net neutrality laws now let me ask you this because we hear from companies like comcast who promise they'd never block or throttle content why would you so aggressively be against something if you're not going to be throttling content anyway why would you be against net neutrality if it technically wouldn't have any effect on you Well, of course, it's because these companies are gaslighting us. Now, U.S. Telecom, who represents these huge corporations who stand to gain billions of dollars in profit from the repeal of net neutrality, what it's saying is any state that chooses to violate the FCC's preemption rule that blocks states from passing their own net neutrality laws, well, we're going to take it upon ourselves to sue each and every single one of these states. It's not just like the FCC alone is acting to stop these states from carrying out their own net neutrality laws because the GPI certainly may very well do that. But this lobbying firm is taking it upon itself to sue states to make sure that their companies, the companies that it represents, have the power to violate net neutrality. And they're doing this brazenly. They released a press release to announce that they'll be suing states. They literally use the language, we're going to aggressively challenge states that enact their own net neutrality laws. Now, again, I, I can't not say it. The reason why these companies and lobbying firms are so brazen in their hatred of net neutrality is because they don't have to worry about consumer backlash. They know that if customers disapprove of what they're doing, well, those customers can't do anything. They can't cancel and boycott that company because otherwise they'd just be left with no internet because in many cases, in many municipalities across the country, you've got one or two options and usually one of those two options is shit internet. (laughs) So you don't have a choice. So that's why they're doing what they want to out in the open. I mean, they're just shamelessly uh, announcing that they're going to be suing states who violate net neutrality. So look, here's what I got to say to this. Bring it on. We knew that when we pushed for net neutrality to be enacted at the state level, that that would attract litigation from lobbying firms who represent these greedy billion-dollar companies. We knew that. We knew that there was going to be pushback. And what the FCC did, really, we have to go back to Ajit Pai as well. What he did is so egregious because he's the one who made this possible. In his repeal order, he made it so states can't pass their own net neutrality rules. And if they did, which he knew that they would do, this could happen. It opened them up to a lawsuit from lobbying firms that are uh, representing companies like Verizon and AT&T. 
Now, mark my words about this. U.S. Telecom will not be the only lobbying firm that sues these states. I guarantee other lobbying firms that represent internet service providers, like CTIA, they're going to join this suit as well. Mark my words about that. And if I'm wrong, then I'll be pleasantly surprised and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say I stand corrected, but I know how these companies operate. I've been tracking this issue now for months, and I've been really following net neutrality for years. And what they do is make sure that any policy that hurts their bottom line or inhibits more profits, they're going to attack. And they're coming out and they're saying it. So what we have to do is we have to continue to relentlessly fight. Don't let this discourage us because what lawmakers might do, I worry after hearing about this, is they might be discouraged and decide not to pass their own net neutrality regulations because they know that it's going to cost a lot of money for them to defend it in court. And what's sad is that U.S. Telecom might actually have a good legal argument. I think we have a good legal argument to push for net neutrality at the state level as well, but they have the FCC behind them. They can point to this repeal order that Ajit Pai and other Republicans on the FCC passed and say, look, they said states can't pass their own net neutrality laws, and here they are passing their own net neutrality laws. Now we want to sue them. So look, this is going to be a really long legal battle, and there's nothing we can really do to control this lobbying firm. We can't control companies. We can't boycott them. But what we can do is continue to exert pressure on lawmakers. And certainly, again, I I can't stress this enough, net neutrality that repeal will take effect sometime in April. So if your state doesn't pass net neutrality laws in time, you will be vulnerable. ISPs in your state can block and throttle content. So you have to fight. It is officially crunch time. We've got to make sure we do everything we can to get our state legislators to act. And again, will they be sued by it? Possibly. And this lawsuit might make them less likely to act. But that means we just have to push even harder because net neutrality is too important of an issue for us to just let go. So as you might have heard recently, former Vice President Joe Biden and Donald Trump are currently in a pissing contest. They both think that they can beat up the other and they are telling the world just how tough they are. Literally. This is American politics in 2018, so we'll get to what Joe Biden said, then I'll tell you what Donald Trump's response was, and then I'll tell you why this is problematic and what it says about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump. When a guy who ended up becoming a national leader said, I can grab a woman anywhere and she likes it, and then said, I made a mistake, I didn't make a mistake. They asked me, would I like to debate this gentleman? I said, no, I said, we're in high school, I take you kind of Jim and Pete Taylor. <laughs> I've been in a lot of rock, locker rooms my whole life, a pretty damn good athlete. Any guy who talked that way was usually the fattest, ugliest SOB in the room. To give you more context, he was talking about the numerous women who have come out and alleged that Donald Trump has sexually assaulted them. And I get the anger. I'm angry that Donald Trump was able to become president, even though many women have come forward saying that this gigantic perv assaulted them. That's unacceptable. But Joe Biden is lowering himself to a high school level in order to discuss this when he should be talking about 
policy ramifications. Joe Biden could have called on Donald Trump to resign like Al Franken did. He could have done something more productive, but instead, he knew what he was getting himself into. He was trying to egg Donald Trump on and get a response via Twitter because Joe Biden wants to set up this rivalry between him and Donald Trump so that way when it comes time for 2020... We can see this play out. He's kind of giving us a snapshot of what's to come. But first of all, before I get to what Donald Trump said, I don't think Joe Biden should be an authority on anything related to women and uh, creepy men because he's pretty creepy himself. Now, I'm not suggesting that he did what Donald Trump did. I'm not suggesting that he assaulted women, but certainly we've seen videos of Joe Biden clearly crossing the boundary, being too touchy-feely with people. That's not acceptable. I cringe at some of the videos about Joe Biden. So again, that may not be tantamount to assault, but certainly I think that he needs to do a little bit of self-reflection here and realize that He's kind of a creep himself. Now, this is what Donald Trump said about the situation. He tweeted out, Crazy Joe Biden is trying to act like a tough guy. Actually, he is weak, both mentally and physically, and yet he threatens me for the second time with physical assault. He doesn't know me, but he would go down fast and hard, crying all the way. Don't threaten people, Joe. So, this is what American discourse has devolved into. (laughs) Middle school level threats that are being lobbed against the president by the former vice president. Two people who will be um, running against each other in 2020. Now, hopefully Joe Biden doesn't become the Democratic Party nominee. But if he does, uh, you know, I I think what he's trying to do is gin up support to um, show Americans that he's a tough guy, that he can take on Donald Trump and that he's not afraid of Donald Trump. Now, why am I talking about this? Why is this important? Because it says a lot about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I don't think that Joe Biden and Donald Trump care about anyone but themselves. This is about egos. Joe Biden isn't choosing to challenge Donald Trump because he cares about sexual assault. This is about bluffing. This is about their own egos. This is about them having a pissing contest. It's not about the American people because if you truly are either in office or going to run for office because you care about the American people, this would not be the way that you conduct yourself. But what they're showing us is that They don't care about anyone but themselves. Joe Biden is going to run a very narcissistic campaign akin to the way Hillary Clinton did, maybe worse than Hillary Clinton, because he's showing that whatever political astuteness he displayed during the 2016 election when he talked about how horrible Hillary Clinton's campaign was, well, that's all gone out the window. He's now choosing to try to basically resort to gutter politics to egg on Donald Trump to get a response because he thinks that this is one way he could generate press coverage. And it's a cheap tactic because it's difficult to generate press coverage if you just talk about policies. But what he's trying to do is overshadow other 2020 contenders by puffing up his own ego. So what we're seeing is narcissism by both of these individuals on display. And the overall conclusion is that neither of them should be in the White House come 2020. It should be someone new. Bernie Sanders, who doesn't give a fuck about his image, who doesn't care about how tough he looks, who cares about the American people. That's what we need. We don't need this pissing contest. It does nothing for the American people. And it really shows us where Joe Biden and Donald Trump's priorities lie. So for those of you who have been paying attention, it's no surprise that the American justice system is fundamentally broken, especially when it comes to state-sanctioned violence against black Americans. And we really learned yet again just how broken it is 
due to a string of news stories that came out this week. So when it comes to Alton Sterling, who was executed by Baton Rouge police, again, he's an unarmed man who was pinned to the ground that was shot and killed. Well, we learned that his family won't even have the chance to make their case in court because there will be no charges filed against the police officers that killed him in cold blood. Now, according to the Louisiana Attorney General, quote, We have concluded that the officers in question acted as reasonable officers under existing law and were justified in their use of force. He was pinned to the ground by two police officers. He was shot and killed when he didn't have to be shot and killed. He didn't have a gun. And the Attorney General is contending that they acted legitimately. They're not even going to have charges brought against them. How are you supposed to legitimize the American justice system and cultivate legitimacy for the American system, American political system, more generally speaking, if this happens? People lose faith in the system if it doesn't work. And it's not working. Now, we also got some news regarding Sam DeBow who was shot and killed, again, unarmed, by Officer Ray Tensing. And Ray Tensing actually was charged with murder and voluntary manslaughter. However, he was never convicted because after two separate trials, both ending with deadlocked juries, well, the Hamilton County prosecutor announced that he would not be trying for a third conviction. So... Ray Tensing will walk free. But this story takes an even weirder turn because Tensing is now being awarded with $350,000 in the form of a settlement. So as HuffPost reports, the University of Cincinnati on Thursday awarded the officer who shot and killed unarmed black motorist Sam DeBow with a settlement worth nearly $350,000, according to the Cincinnati Inquirer. The settlement comes after the Ohio Police Union filed a grievance for University of Cincinnati officer Raymond Tensing Tensing, who was fired following DeBose 2015 death. Tensing agreed to officially resign in exchange for $244,000 in back pay and benefits and $100,000 for legal fees. So Ray Tensing isn't going to be convicted for killing Sam DeBose, and now he's effectively being rewarded for killing Sam DeBose. And it gets even worse because there was another unarmed black man who was shot and killed this week. His name is Stefan Clark. Now, as Sebastian Murdoch of HuffPost reports, police fatally shot an unarmed black man in Sacramento, California on Sunday night after two officers mistook his cell phone for a weapon. Police responded to the area near 22-year-old Stefan Clark's home after receiving calls that someone in the neighborhood was breaking car windows, the Sacramento Bee reported. Police dispatched a helicopter to the area, which began following the movements of Clark. The helicopter crew said it saw a man break the sliding glass door of a home before jumping a fence into another backyard. Police confronted Clark, who they said ran from officers. At about 9.30 p.m., two officers confronted Clark outside the property where he lived with his grandparents and two young children. Police and Clark advanced on them with an object in his hand. Fearing for their safety, the officers began firing at Clark, hitting him multiple times, the department said. Two officers each fired 10 shots at Clark, though it was not immediately clear how many times he was struck. Police said they believed Clark was armed with a gun, though no weapon was found. The department then said they believed Clark was carrying a toolbar used to smash windows. Instead, they found only a cell phone on him. Now, a video released by the Sacramento Police Department sheds a little bit more light on what happened. Just 
Now, when I watched this video, I looked at the comment section, which, rule number one, never look at the comment section for videos. There were a lot of people basically siding with police officers because what he was doing looked suspicious. He, you know, jumped over a fence, he was looking in cars, but if you think that justifies him being shot 20 times, even if he did break into cars, hypothetically speaking, we don't know that that's the case, but even if he did, if you think being shot 20 times was justified, then you fundamentally misunderstand not only how our justice system works, but the concept of justice altogether, because being executed is not a proportional response to someone that allegedly was robbing cars. If he was guilty, you apprehend him and try to go for a conviction. You don't murder him on the spot, but clearly many cops in this country aren't trained properly to de-escalate situations, which is what they're supposed to do, hence why we see so many killings. Now, Stefan Clark's grandmother was there when he was shot and killed, and what she has to say, it's gut-wrenching. They didn't have to kill him like that. They didn't have to shoot him that many times. And, and the detectives that came in and kept telling me, don't go outside or go in the back. I said, well, what happened? I hope y'all didn't kill one of my grandkids because they come to the back door, I mean, to the window, and my husband just pulled the garage up. And he's at home. He was at home. He was there that day. We was looking at his sister dead through the praise that she made up. He was crying. And, and I said, I said, how old are you going to be? And he said, Grandma, I'll be 24 in August. My grandson was 23 years old. And then now my great-grandbabies don't have their daddy. Because they didn't even stop. Why did you just shoot him in the arm, shoot him in the leg, send a dog, send a taser? Why? <laughs> Why? Y'all didn't have to do that. Y'all didn't have to. They <laughs> were cell phone. <laughs> I just want justice for my grandson, for my daughter, my poor baby. She's in so much pain. She's in pain. And the brothers, he's, he ain't got but two brothers. <laughs> oh my God. 
Justice. Justice! I want justice for my baby! I want justice for Stephon Clark! Please give us justice! <laughs> so, that was incredibly difficult to get through. Um, to see the pain that this caused... You know, it goes without saying, she absolutely deserves justice. But after seeing the other news stories from Sam DeBow and Alton Sterling, I'm not convinced that Stefan Clark's grandmother will, in fact, see that there's justice for her grandson. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's probably not going to be justice for Stefan Clark because I'm trying to be callous. But our justice system is set up in a way that makes justice for victims of police brutality highly improbable. So the only way to get justice is to demand it in the form of criminal justice reform. And this issue is extremely complex. There's a lot of things we can and need to do to stop this. But you can start by supporting efforts by activist Sean King, for example, who actually created a group akin to Justice Democrats that aims to elect progressive prosecutors. So when these types of tragedies occur, justice is in fact possible. But even more importantly, is doing everything in our power to prevent these types of things from happening in the first place. And comprehensive criminal justice reform is what's needed. Now, the problem is that I don't ever hear politicians who claim to care about this issue, i.e. Democrats, talk about this unless there is an election coming up. Now, I get it. There's a lot of issues going on. The people in Flint, Michigan are just now getting clean drinking water, but some people still don't have clean drinking water. In fact, a lot of people don't. We have wars going on in multiple countries, so I get it. There's a lot of issues, and it's so difficult to focus on just one issue. But we have to keep the pressure on because this can't keep happening. That goes without saying in a democracy. Citizens can't just be killed and there not be any repercussions, no policy changes at all. It's unacceptable. So, currently... There's not much we can do with our current justice system. We have to push for change. Otherwise, this will keep happening. A lot of Americans don't know that Saudi Arabia is currently carrying out a literal genocide in Yemen. And they're doing this with weapons that we sold to them. And it's not like we weren't aware of what they were doing in Yemen. We know what they're doing. We knew that they would use the weapons we recently sold to them to kill innocent civilians in Yemen, and yet we sold weapons to them anyway. Now, President Donald Trump recently just approved another billion-dollar weapons deal for Saudi Arabia. That's a lot of weapons to kill innocent Yemeni civilians. But nobody seems to care about this. So thankfully, we had this rare instance where... A liberal and a conservative teamed up to put an end to this. So Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee, a very conservative senator from Utah, decided to introduce a resolution to stop the United States from providing ongoing support to Saudi Arabia as they commit this atrocity. But it was put up to a vote and it was defeated in a 55 to 44 vote. And can you guess why it failed ultimately? 
because a number of Democrats teamed up with Republicans to vote it down. So Akbar Shahid Amen of HuffPost writes, Senators Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee, and Chris Murphy introduced the bill to end the American role in the war three weeks ago, and it attracted high-profile co-sponsors like Senators Dick Durbin, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, and Dianne Feinstein. But Senate leaders, notably top Senate Foreign Relations Committee figures Bob Corker and Bob Menendez, said the proposal was too hasty and should return to committee, and the Trump administration invested heavily in convincing lawmakers it would unwisely damage the American partnership with the Saudis. Menendez and nine other Democrats, Senators Chris Coons, Catherine Cortez Masto, Joe Donnelly, Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Manchin, Bill Nelson, Jack Reed, Doug Jones, and Sheldon Whitehouse ultimately aligned with all but five Republicans to kill the bill. The issue came to a head this week as Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, visits Washington. President Donald Trump said on Tuesday he was very good friends with the prince, who has been closely involved in Saudi United Arab Emirates operations and alleged war crimes in Yemen. Earlier Tuesday, Sanders said it would be cowardly and irresponsible for lawmakers to oppose putting this bill up to a vote. I am deeply disappointed that Congress has once again abdicated its constitutional ability to authorize war, he said in a statement after the resolution was tabled. Activists who mobilized around the issue, highlighting the plight of the more than 20 million Yemenis now in need of some aid, say Tuesday's vote has only emboldened them. Some began publicly shaming the Democrats who voted against the Sanders-Lee Murphy bill. And they should be shamed. Because when it comes to Republicans, of course, what they did is loathsome in voting against this as well, but we know what to expect from Republicans, but Democrats, they always champion themselves as the anti-war party, and here they are, teaming up with Republicans to vote this down. Anyone who voted for this, make no mistake about it, they are now complicit in a genocide against the Yemeni people. They have blood on their hands, and it's not like I'm surprised to see people like Joe Manchin, who was at Heidi Heidkamp, Jack Reed, Catherine Cortez Masto, I'm not surprised that they would team up with Republicans, but you would think that they would at least have the common decency to not support a rogue regime like Saudi Arabia as they relentlessly carry out a genocide in Yemen, but they don't even have the courtesy to do that. They are absolutely despicable, and what's frustrating to me is that knowing that the American people are war-averse, especially after Iraq and Afghanistan, you'd think the mainstream media would be talking about this day in and day out, but all we see when we turn on the TV is Stormy Daniels this, Russia that, and I'm getting so sick of it. There are issues that are occurring that Americans don't even know about. How many people that you know personally have talked about Yemen? And the genocide in Yemen that's being carried out by Saudi Arabia. I mean, what's happening there is absolutely disgusting. There's mass famine because of Saudi's blockade. Medical supplies can't get into the country because of Saudi Arabia and what they're doing. And the United States, who claims to care about human rights, is doing nothing. And it's not just that we're doing nothing. We're helping Saudi Arabia. We are assisting them in the death and destruction of this whole country by giving them weapons deals. And Donald Trump, even though he was non-interventionist before he was elected, he doesn't want to do anything to damage the relationship that the United States has with Saudi Arabia. So you're just going to allow them to carry out a genocide? Unbelievable. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should invade Saudi Arabia, but I'm certainly saying that as 
the most powerful country in the world with the biggest military in the history of humanity, we have some power and influence on foreign events. We do. We can tell Saudi Arabia that if they continue this genocide, no more support, no more aid, no more weapons deals. And guess what? They would be inclined to listen because Saudi Arabia is nothing without the U.S. helping them out, without the U.S.'s influence. But unfortunately, we live in a country where war is a profitable business and senators vote against it because they take money from the military industrial complex. So understand that the only reason why they voted this down is because they're corrupt. So I'm glad that Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee and uh, Chris Coons even decided to, or Chris Murphy, excuse me, proposed this um, amendment because even if it failed, we know where people in the Senate stand. And there's a lot of disgusting people in the Senate that voted this down, 55 to be exact, who should all be kicked out of office because they don't care about human life. And if you don't care about human life, you shouldn't be serving in a government body where you represent other people. So organizations like Justice Democrats, Brand New Congress, Our Revolution are pushing to make sure that Democrats in Congress currently against Medicare for All either change their position or they get primaried and lose their seat. Because Medicare for All, single payer, this is something that is non-negotiable. I'm not willing to budge. If you're against this, I'm against you. Because without Medicare for All, people in this country will continue to die or go bankrupt if they don't have insurance. Or in some cases, even if they have have insurance because they might have an insurance provider that doesn't cover the procedure that they need. So that shouldn't happen in a country as rich as the United States. So at this point, it's non-negotiable. So these organizations are making sure that we kick out these members of Congress in the Democratic Party that aren't doing the right thing. But progressives are learning that with every action comes a reaction because the health insurance industry is now pushing back and coming to the defense of Democrats who are against Medicare for all. Now, as Carl Gibson of Grid Post reports, in the current cycle, big health insurers have quietly donated more than $150,000 to Democrats opposed to Medicare for all legislation. Health insurers likely see Medicare for all threatening their bottom line in the future and are spending large sums to keep politicians who are favorable to the private health insurance model. According to federal campaign finance records, the four leading private health insurance providers, Aetna, Anthem, Cigna, and United Health, have spent $158,000 in the 2017-2018 campaign cycle on Democrats opposed to single-payer health care. So to reiterate what's happening, we're making sure that we primary corporate Democrats who take money from the health insurance industry to make sure that we elect people who are in favor of Medicare for all. And what do they do? They spend even more money on Democrats who are against Medicare for all. And that does two things. One, not only does it improve the prospects that they'll win their re-election campaign and win their primary, but it keeps them against Medicare for all. Now, I'm all about naming and shaming, so I want to actually look at the numbers here and see who these four companies have contributed to. So they have combined, donated $35,000 to the Blue Dog Pack. Now, individually speaking, Chris Murphy took a combined $34,000 from these four companies who are pushing to make sure that anyone who is in favor of Medicare for all is not elected. Tim Kaine took 20 k from these four companies, 
Bob Casey took 17,500. Bill Nelson also took 17,500. Claire McCaskill took 8,000. Joe Manchin took 6,500. Tom Carper took 5,000. Joe Donnelly took 5,000. Debbie Stabenow took 3,500. John Tester took 3,500. Ben Cardin took 2,500. And surprise, surprise, none of these individuals co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Because why would any of these four companies donate to a politician who co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill? They wouldn't, because that bill existentially threatens these health insurers. They want to make sure that Medicare for All never comes to fruition because they make money by ripping us off and providing us with inadequate health care. So these Democrats who are all accepting this money willingly from companies who profit off of death, they have blood on their hands every single time someone isn't able to see a doctor and ends up dying from something that's curable. They have blood on their hands every single time someone dies because they're not able to come up with the money needed for a deductible that their insurance provider is requiring for a surgery they need. I mean, how many thousands of people per year have to die before Democrats actually take the right stand, shun this money, say, I don't want your money, and start pushing for Medicare for all? Well, of course, they're not going to do that. Because why would they do that? Because they love the money that they're receiving from health insurance companies. And it's not just in this cycle that they've taken thousands of dollars. I mean, throughout their careers, if you look, people like Joe Manchin, Claire McCaskill, Heidi Heitkamp, they've collectively taken a lot of money from health insurance companies. And what that does is it ensures that they will remain beholden to health insurance companies. Well, we're on to you. We know that your unwillingness to budge on this issue is due exclusively to corruption. If they weren't taking this money from health insurance companies, then maybe, you know, it might be the case that they're just against Medicare for all for principled reasons because they think a public option is better, but they were bought off. That's why they've taken this position. Well, guess what, though? I don't care how much money you took from health insurance companies. Medicare for all is going to be something that progressives will never back down from because this is certainly our litmus test. I will never vote for a politician again who is against Medicare for all. And it's not just me. A lot of progressives are taking this hardline stance. And we have to be unwilling to negotiate and compromise here because if we yield Democrats even an inch, they're going to exploit that. And revert back to their old ways where they don't care about Medicare for all. But this continued pressure progressives have exerted on corporate Democrats has changed the conversation. I mean, it's now the case that a majority of Americans support Medicare for all. And we have over a dozen Democrats, corporate Democrats, mind you, co-sponsoring Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all bill in Congress. So we're not going to budge. You can try to bankroll these corporate Democrats, all you want health insurance companies, but that doesn't mean that we're going to stop. And certainly what we're going to do now is shame these corporate Democrats who are taking money because that money is blood money. They're accepting money knowing that their unwillingness to act because of this money will result in people dying. Shame on every single one of these disgusting, loathsome Democrats. So over the course of the last month, I noticed that videos posted to the Humanist Report YouTube channel have been getting unusually low amounts of views. Now at first, I wasn't alarmed by this because views tend to inexplicably increase and decrease all the time. So typically, 
we usually bounce back within a couple of weeks, but this time it was a little bit different because we weren't bouncing back. So my first thought was, clearly I'm doing something wrong. I'm not discussing the topics that my subscribers want to hear about. Maybe the uh, news cycle in the United States just isn't that compelling and people are tuning out. So I looked at other similar YouTube channels like Secular Talk, The Jimmy Dore Show, Rational National. Turns out they also had views that were much lower than they usually are. And now I personally have been getting less views than we had when the channel was at 10,000 subscribers. So I realized that this was something that was really weird. Something strange was happening. And I began to notice the problem when I saw that Kyle Kalinske posted out a tweet linking to one of the videos that he recently uploaded to YouTube. Now, I didn't watch it right away, but later on when I went to see that video, it was nowhere to be found in my subscription feed. And turns out, now that I was aware of this issue, there were other videos from creators that I typically watch that weren't showing up in my subscription feed. Come to find out, this has been happening to quite a lot of people who watch videos on YouTube, and a lot of creators were experiencing the same thing. Now, YouTube actually suggested that this was a glitch on Twitter saying some videos took longer than normal to appear in the subs feed this morning. The issue is now fixed. Thanks for the reports. Now, at the time when they made this tweet, the issue was obviously not fixed, which led to people basically responding saying, it's not fixed. What are you talking about? We're still experiencing this very same problem. So YouTube responded saying, thanks everyone for your additional reports and comments about the subs feed. It feels like something is still up. So we're continuing to investigate more updates to follow. Now the team YouTube Twitter account hasn't actually given us any updates since this tweet was posted on March 14th, but what we ended up learning is that what was supposedly a glitch wasn't actually a glitch at all, because in a video posted to the Creator Insider YouTube channel, we were told that YouTube was purposefully not delivering all of our videos to subscribers, and this is what they specifically said about the topic. We don't notify all of your subscribers, right? We notify all of your subscribers who have rung the bell, and then your most active subscribers after that. Okay, so we try to notify um, the people who we believe would be most likely to tune in and watch your content. That's right. While it's live. That's right. While not necessarily overwhelming and spamming um, all of your subscribers with these, these notifications. That's right. That makes sense to me. Yeah. That's what, we, that's what we see our users want. If they don't ring the bell and they're just subscribers, then we put them in a occasional notification state. So that means that they get algorithmically determined notifications. Mouthful there, but what it really just yeah, means... Yeah, what, what does that mean? Yeah, that, well, what that really just means is that your most active subscribers, so users who are watching your channel and your live streams, uh, are going to get notifications as soon as you go live. Uh, we also send notifications to, to users who aren't your subscribers, but they also watch your content very actively, and we think they'll be interested in, in watching your live stream, so we send them notifications as well. Now, to be clear, many people were initially unsure if what they were saying applied to non-live streaming videos, because this discussion was tailored to changes made to YouTube live streaming. But in a response to YouTuber Jesse Wellens on Twitter... Team YouTube did clarify that this change, in fact, does affect all types of notifications, 
and they claimed that this was based on frustration viewers voiced with the amount of notifications they received, which then prompted the addition of the bell. And they also stated that you can change the settings if you don't want them to automatically filter out what you see in your subscription feed. Now, what's odd is that as someone who's been on this website for multiple years now, I've never seen a single person complain that they were getting too many notifications from their subscription feed. And part of the reason why people weren't complaining about this was because you control how many videos are appearing in your subscription feed based on the amount of channels you subscribe to. So if you don't want that many videos to show up in your subscription feed, then you just don't subscribe to that many channels. So they did this huge site-wide change because of a few people that were supposedly complaining, but wouldn't you make them change their settings and not force people who expect things to function in a certain way have to change their settings? And as the top YouTube comment on that video from Strowman states, if I click subscribe on a channel, that means, hey, I want to see more of this, not, oh, I want YouTube to tell me what I want and don't want to see. Please just get rid of this system. It's complicated and does not make sense. And that's exactly it. As a creator on this website, I wasn't aware of the fact that if somebody subscribed to my videos, they also now have to click the notification bell if they want to have all of my videos delivered to their subscription feed. And that doesn't really make any sense because the notification bell, I thought, was just something that supplements the subscription option. So when you subscribe, that shows up in your subscription box. Any video from creators that you're subscribed to will go there. And with the notification bell, I just thought that that sends people email notifications and push notifications. But now, come to find out, they rolled out this change where if you want to see all of our videos in your sub box, you have to be subscribed and you have to hit the notification bell. So it's an additional step that was rolled out recently that creators and viewers don't know anything about. They just did it like that, and we only found out once it fucked us over. Now, what makes this change especially moronic is that if top watchers of a channel will be the only ones notified, then that means if someone stops watching some of my videos for a while, they might just stop seeing our videos in their subscription box altogether, which incentivizes clickbait so creators do everything they can to get as many subscribers as possible to click every single one of their videos. It's just going to turn YouTube into a shittier environment for videos. And I actually had one of my uh, longtime subscribers, who is also a Patreon patron, reach out and say, hey, I was wondering what was going on because you haven't posted anything in a really long time. And for those who've been, who've been watching the show, no, I post a video every single day to this channel. It's very rare when I actually miss a day where we don't upload a video to this YouTube channel. And he said, I was wondering what was going on and if you quit, but come to find out, your videos just weren't showing up in my subscription box, and then it turned out that I was actually unsubscribed as well. So this is something that it doesn't just affect independent media, news shows on YouTube, but all types of creators. And as I stated on Twitter, this could potentially be even more devastating than the adpocalypse of 2017, and this is what I said. This change is potentially more harmful than the adpocalypse. We had no ads, but still had the views that drove support for us on Patreon and also the ability to attract in-video sponsorships. But now, we risk slowly fading into obscurity while no one notices. This is dangerous. Now, to clarify, once the adpocalypse hit, the amount of support we received through Patreon was overwhelming. We had hundreds of people sign up to support the show, and in addition to that, we had multiple companies at least reach out to us saying, hey, we want to sponsor you. We want to advertise in one of your videos. But if viewers don't know that our videos are being suppressed, then how are they going to know that they need to support us on Patreon? If small businesses 
are trying to advertise with us to support independent media, but we're not getting as much views as we used to, well, that's no longer a lucrative option since we're not going to be able to deliver people to their businesses if we're not getting a lot of views. So this is something that could potentially be a death blow to small creators just barely hanging on. And long term, I mean, this is horrible. So here's how you can guarantee that all of our videos are now delivered to you. When you subscribe, you now have to hit the bell. Otherwise, you may not get all of our videos. Now, additional ways that you can make sure our content is delivered to you is to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And I know that a lot of people hate Facebook and some of you hate Twitter as well. But every time at least we post a video from the Humanist Report, we automatically will tweet out a link to that video. So if you're not seeing it in your YouTube subscription feed, you'll at least see it on Twitter. Now, additionally, since our views have been cut in half, our ad revenue has also been cut in half. So I'm going to link down below to channels that you can support on Patreon to help them out. Even if you can only spare a dollar, that will help. Because it seems like every single month they roll out a new change that fucks over creators. And long term, this platform is becoming incredibly unfriendly to creators. And there's currently no alternative that challenges YouTube. I mean, you have Twitch, but that's really only for gaming. So it's a really dire situation. And I would highly encourage you to support your favorite creators on Patreon. If I'm not your favorite show, if the human support isn't your cup of tea, then support someone else who you like on Patreon if you truly like their content. Because without your support now, these channels wouldn't exist. So, um, yeah. So just so you guys know, make sure that if you like someone and you want to see their videos show up in your subscription box, you've got to hit the notification bell. And on every single video now, I will be telling people to hit the notification bell because that's the only way that all almost 200,000 of our subscribers are going to see all of our videos. It's infuriating. YouTube is, they are, they're digging their own grave, really. But as they dig their own grave, they're bringing all of us down with them. So I really hope that a viable alternative rises up soon, because otherwise, I don't know how much longer creators will be welcome on this platform. It's becoming increasingly corporatized. We see more trending videos from CNN, ABC News, late night hosts. This is becoming a corporate platform and we're no longer welcome here. So we have to be aware of the situation and acknowledge changes that might hurt us in the future. And we have to try to adapt as quickly as possible. Well, that's all I got for you guys. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode, you truly are a fan of the Humanist Report. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to hear someone like me with a voice as annoying as mine talk for this long, I mean, you care about the issues to sit through all of that. So thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support. And I want to send another shout out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors and also our GoFundMe backers who helped purchase this brand new studio for us. Thank you all so much. Hopefully this was a good episode for you guys. Hopefully you learned at least something. Um, Until next week, take care. 